0: to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. We're talking hips and knees, pedesting, seeing blindness through a different lens. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. You know, at a certain time of life, it seems that many people get new hips and knees at breakneck speed, which may be why surgical wait lists are long. This procedure is a surgical procedure where parts of an arthritic or damaged joint are removed and are replaced with a device called a prosthesis or an implant, turning 60-year-olds into 40-year-olds and creating a whole new generation of hip chicks. Joining me on the line to dive deeper into this is Dr. John Antonio. He's professor of surgery at McGill University, and he is an orthopedic surgeon who does this surgery. Good evening, Dr. Antonio, and thanks so much for joining me. Good evening. It's great to have you. This is something that a lot of people, it seems, are getting. A lot of my patients are having a new hip, sometimes two new knee. Um, Why is it that people need to get this hip replacement?
1: Um, Well, Mr. McGrath, essentially, part of it is uh, could be genetic. Um, You might be predisposed or or bone at the risk. Of, um, of developing arthritis um, could be, you know, somewhat structural, so maybe a, a defect of birth, or something where we don't quite understand, but there seems to be a, pred- a genetic link associated with this. And part of it could also be environmental, um, some kind of an accident, or a very an extremely active lifestyle uh, could predispose people to develop osteoarthritis, which is the most common reason. Uh, we develop, we do joint replacements for is osteoarthritis. There's other sources, other reasons we do joint adju- 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 replacements. Uh, things like rheumatoid arthritis, osteonecrosis, uh, or avascular necrosis where the bone dies. Um, hip fractures, like really bad hip fractures, or tumors uh, in the hip joint. Uh, there's other reasons why people develop, uh, um, you know, end stage arthritis, but uh, osteoarthritis is the most common.
0: I see, and is, does the same apply to knees as well? We're lots of knee replacements these days.
1: Yeah, uh, same same deal. Um, there osteoarthritis is still the most common source, uh, you know, and, and of course, uh, mechanical uh, causes are slightly more common, but genetics still plays a role, um, and of course, lifestyle and previous injuries and so forth. Uh, have a, you know, and also previous surgeries sometimes predispose people to to developing uh, end stage osteoarthritis, which then ultimately requires uh, a knee replacement.
0: So essentially, it can be an overuse injury as well. So for people who are cyclists and skiers and uh, hockey players, perhaps um, by the time they hit their maybe mid fifties, sixties, they start to get significant pain. Is that how this presents itself?
1: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, And in the case of of knees, um, things like weight could also play a role um, along with an active lifestyle and so forth. But uh, there's there's, there's obviously, as I mentioned, there's many predisposing factors, uh, some of them inherent uh, and some of them uh, environmental.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, I know the pandemic probably uh, played a role in creating these extensive surgical wait lists. Um, I hear about a lot of of my patients who are waiting a long time to get a hip replacement. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, certainly this has been an ongoing problem for for many years, um, and I've had various roles, both locally, and nationally, and internationally, advocating sort of for more access to drug replacements over the years, including being you know the president of the Canadian Orthopedic Association. And we've we've advocated strongly, with you know, on various levels of government, both at the national and international level. Uh, but specifically related to Canada, you know, trying trying to get people more access to this operation. Uh, and so we already started off with a difficult problem um, and uh, one that we were actively trying to solve with the government, although not with much success, unfortunately. But the pandemic certainly accelerated and accentuated this issue, and uh, you know, it, it takes resources to to deal with this problem. And, and of course, with an aging population, uh, the things aren't aren't getting any better. And 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 the other thing is, patient education. I mean, you know, in the past, people were afraid to get operations. The operations weren't maybe not as successful. Maybe we're talking decades ago, but uh, people just weren't as you know ready to go under the knife to have the hips replaced or joints hip knees replaced. But uh, with new technology and the success of the operation, I mean hip replacement itself has been dubbed the operation of the century. It is an extremely successful surgery. People don't see the reason why they should suffer and so they, they opt to, to, to be treated and, and, and undergo surgery, maybe more so now than decades past. And and so all that conspires to the fact that, you know, we are now Uh, hitting a crisis point in terms of just people languishing on very long wait lists waiting to undergo this life-changing procedure.
0: Mm hmm. And many people and maybe in particular women who I think maybe tolerate pain a bit more. I don't mean to be sexist or a bit longer. um, Maybe don't go to uh, or think that they can live with it. It's not that bad. But a lot of people tolerate the pain and think it's not that bad. It's okay, And then they realize it starts to impact their quality of life, their jobs, um, their relationships. And then they are starting on pain medication. And then maybe waiting to get in to see the doctor. So all of this is waiting. What would you say to somebody who had a father, for example, who needed a hip replacement, who was very active, very athletic throughout their life, uh, and started to feel pain? What would you recommend that they do in their hip?
1: Well, you know, c- certainly talking to their family doctor uh, about, uh, about this is, is critical. I mean, uh, you know, one of the problems that we have in this country also is that a lot of us don't have access to family doctors but that that would be the first step and and certainly at that level you know there's many early type of uh interventions that could be um taken to to help you know relieve the pain and unfortunately there is no cure for arthritis uh but there are ways to slow the progression say things like weight loss or activity modification and so forth but you know you you sort of talk to your family doctor and 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 uh, get counseling that way, and ultimately, when all sort of what we call conservative measures or non-surgical measures have been exhausted, and the final, you know, the final solution, you know, ends up being a, a drug replacement. And you know, although it sounds onerous, uh, it is it is an intervention that, that's quite successful and works very 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 well.
0: Yeah, they certainly seem to be commonplace. I did have a patient who refused the surgery last year and has suffered uh, for a year with pain, and then has decided to go ahead with the surgery this year, thinking that it wasn't all that bad. Um, and once people, before we get into it, um, what exactly it is, um, you said that they're quite successful. That the especially the hip replacement surgery um, is one of them easier to do than the other is, um, and. You know, can do people really feel like forty-year-olds once they let uh, eliminate that chronic pain that they have associated with hip or knee pain?
1: They're both very successful procedures.
0: Hips are,
1: for, for whatever reason, it's not necessarily that they're, they're easier or, or 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 harder than knee but somehow um, they are slightly more successful. Although both both interventions are considered very successful surgeries, um, and it's essentially, people do regain the quality of life. They do regain their function. And it's not just a simple fact. I mean, some people literally um, have it done, oh, certainly at 70 and 80, and you feel like, like you're 20 or 30 years younger. But there's even young folks that undergo procedure, you know, hip replacements, specifically uh, certain types of hip replacements hip resurfacing that are in their 30s and 40s that, Get back to an extremely active lifestyle. I mean, I, I don't know if you've watched the recent um, U.S. Open, but Andy Murray had a hip resurfacing, which is a type of hip replacement, and he he beat the number thirteen in the world. So it 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 really gets you. I mean, there's some professional hockey players like Nicholas Backstrom for the Washington Capitals that had a hip resurfacing and is back to playing on on a professional team. So we're not just talking. 60 to 40-year-olds, but people who uh, feel like their hip is destroyed and get back to an extremely high level of activity.
0: We are talking hips and knees. In particular, we're talking about hips and knees with orthopedic surgeon Dr. John Antonio. He joins us from Montreal. He's a professor of surgery at McGill University. And as I said, he's an orthopedic surgeon. Thank you so much, Dr. Antonio, for staying on the line. Really appreciate it. Pleasure. You touched upon hip resurfacing. Now, what exactly is that? And, yes, I did watch the U.S. Open. Loved it. (laughs) Um, Awesome.
1: Uh, Yes. Well, um, so hip hip replacements, as you mentioned at the the top of the show, um, is just replacing your arthritic or worn joint uh, with some kind of an implant um, that enables enables your, your worn hip to function as a normal hip. Well, hip resurfacing um, essentially is a kind of hip replacement. Um, hip replacements remove the worn, the entire worn femoral head, and replace a an implant down the femur um, on on the that's on the on the thigh side of the of the um, uh, of the procedure. And then on the acetabular side, we replace the uh, or the cup side, the the side that, that receives the ball. We, we replace that with a, with a cup and aligners, so that's a hip replacement where, where we take a, take away a, a good chunk of the hip to, to replace it with an artificial-type implant. Hip resurfacing um, takes away much less bone. It's still a type of hip replacement, and it, all you do is replace the surface of the femur and the surface of the acetabulum or the socket part with a, um, uh, a synthetic or artificial material. In most instances, it ends up being a metal uh, ephemeral uh, component and the metal last tablet component. They're just you're just replacing the surfaces. The newer components have alternate materials like like ceramics, which which is a newer type material. You know, so the newer ceramics are also being used now. Uh, but metal is a more traditional type of resurfacing uh, material we use for hip resurfacing. Um, but those are the that's that's the difference in a hip replacement and a hip resurfacing.
0: They I both see. Are considered a
1: considered type of hip replacement?
0: Why would somebody choose a hip resurfacing over a hip replacement?
1: So, hip, hip resurfacing um, in general uh, tends to be reserved for people with with stronger bones. So, as as I said, the 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 bone underneath the implant uh, has to be strong because we rely heavily on that bone for the procedure to work. So, in general, it tends to be younger uh, and. Traditionally, um, males, because males uh, tend to have slightly better bone quality and bone density than, than uh, females, especially females of a certain age. And so uh, the, the research that do best are done in young, active males or athletic males. And it's been seen and shown that, that me- mechanically you reconstitute the hip a bit better and people tend to function at a slightly higher level within with it. With the hip replacement, you'll see uh, several professional athletes undergo this procedure, but you know you don't really see professional athletes undergo hip replacements because the mechanics that are recreated, although very good, don't quite give you that level, that elite level of function that's required, say, to play in the U.S. Open or uh, in the NHL type type of procedure. Whereas hip, there are several there are certain patients now that have undergone that procedure that have returned to that level of activity.
0: Wow, that so is amazing it's, yeah yeah, so are there a number of orthopedic surgeons across the country that do this hip resurfacing? I know you do it, and you do the most in the country
1: um yeah we do we do a high number in our in our clinic um, but uh, yeah, there's a few uh, it's it, a bit of a bit more technically demanding and and requires a, um, a a bit a bit of experience. i mean I've been doing these for over twenty years, and there's a few of us that do it across the country but um, I'd say there's about, uh, eight or 10 that, that do these uh, on a regular basis across the country.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Orthopedic so surgeon, f- that is. Yes. So for, it's essentially for younger, larger, healthier boned men, if you will, yeah. um, that, that those, are, those at- are the
1: patients that do the best. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Who are ath- athletes. Can people request this type or is this a conversation with your doctor, your orthopedic surgeon?
1: Yeah, it's a conversation with orthopedic surgeons. There's pros and cons. Um, and like I said, uh, metal, because the most common type of hip restriction that's been used for the last 20 years is metal on metal, as I said. Some people react a bit to metal, um, and there are some uh, potential risks associated with use of, of those materials in certain patients. So the patient, the, the surgeon the surgeon or the, or the physician that offers a procedure has to have that discussion with the patient to see if it's the right procedure for them. Um, to get to move away from the metals now, there are newer materials like ceramics, which are not, not Health Canada approved yet, but uh, are being uh, looked at experimentally for the last few years um, th- that are also quite successful. But it's, it's definitely a, a, a conversation you should have with your, with your doctor to see if you're a good candidate for that. Certainly, hip replacements uh, that we were talking about before um, are uh, much more ubiquitous and can be used in the entire population. Including women uh, that are a bit older, and you know, women that have slightly uh, weaker bones, or or maybe osteopenia, osteoporosis. In some instances. Um, there are types of implants that are used in a very safe fashion, including things like cement that's used to help uh, sort of the the implant uh, being you know placed in, into the bone in a more safe fashion to avoid what's called um, femur fractures when you know when you have bones that are a bit more. Uh, Weakened by osteoporosis. So depending on, it's not a one size fits all. There's different implants for different patients. And so an experienced orthopedic surgeon will uh, choose what the right implant is for you to make sure you have a successful outcome.
0: And getting to the successful outcomes, um, hip and knee replacement surgeries are two of the most commonly performed operations in orthopedic surgery. How big of a surgery is it? And you can separate them out. And and how is the recovery, and what is the recovery time?
1: Um, so, in in general, our our surgical times have over the years have, have dropped significantly. Um, on, it tends to be a one hour, uh, depending on if you use certain equipment, maybe an hour and a half type procedure uh, for both the hip and knee replacement. Um, we are now advanced to the point where many times we are offering these procedures as day surgeries, where people come in in the morning um, and go home the same day. Um, there are different types of um, systems and protocols that have been developed across country that allow us, you know, to to offer that to the patients. And 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 when it's same day surgery or short stay surgery, it it uh, allows us to do more of these procedures because we don't. Clog up hospital beds, and we're not beholden to hospital beds that are uh, tend to be filled up with a lot of patients, especially in winter months. You know, sick patients, you know, because of the flu and so forth. In, in the past, we used to have to cancel surgeries because we just didn't have hospital beds to put people in, and people used to stay for weeks on end. But now, um, these these operations that can be done either same day or within can go home almost within within a day or two depending on how you know, physically mobile people are and, and, and how strong they are, of course. But, um, and then they tend to go home. Uh, most people, and now the vast majority go home as opposed to go, going to the rehab to a rehab center, which is what used to be the case uh, in decades past. And, and again, people walk within a, usually walk within a few hours of surgery, obviously with a walking aid, and that's true for hips and knees. And um, like I said, they go home early. Um, usually in most provinces, you have some kind of a in-home care that, that allows you to continue doing exercise at home through the help of a physiotherapy, physiotherapist. And of course, um, uh, wound care is offered at home also. And uh, within, a week, within a couple of weeks, most people are able to start driving their car, depending on what, which leg was operated on. And usually within six weeks, you're walking without any kind of mechanical assistance. In other words, you're no longer needing a cane or a walker. So it's, and that's true for hips and knees. So it's, it's, it's an operation that that has really come a long way and has has evolved tremendously over, over the last few
0: decades. Well, that is awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Antonio. Really appreciate you coming on the program to educate us about hip and knee replacement surgery. Pleasure. World Sight Day coming up on October twelfth. I thought it was a great opportunity to catch up with Ramya Amuthan. We've had her on the show in the past. In fact, last year, she is a 30-year-old Torontonian living with inherited retinal disease. Good evening, Ramya. How are you? Hey, Maureen. I'm well. How are you? I'm very well, too. Thank you so much for asking. So uh, first and foremost, just for the listeners, before we catch up with you and how things are going on your vision, vision loss journey, can you explain what inherited retinal disease is? Sure. Um, Retinal Inherited retinal disease, IRD,
2: um, also people might colloquially refer to it as genetic eye conditions, are just that. They're conditions that come about because of gene mutations, uh, recessive or dominant. So they're in your genetics and they show up as a um, vision uh, condition of some sort. It's most likely retinal, but not always the case. To then, um, yeah, appear as a vision condition in your life. What I have is an inherited retinal disease called Leber's congenital amaurosis, Leber's, uh, and it's a family of conditions that come out um, because of two mutated genes from your parents,
0: one from each side. Wow. It sounds like it's a rare disease. It's not something that most people may have heard of. Is that correct?
2: Yes, definitely rare, um, but also it's an umbrella. So there's umbrella of Leber's, umbrella of RP, retinitis pigmentosa. Those are two very uh, well-known IRD families. And um, so the actual mutations can be rare. Some people are actually not even necessarily diagnosed in their lifetimes or when they start to notice changes in their vision. You go to the uh, ophthalmologist, they do testing, and there's not enough research yet to maybe tell you exactly what it is that you have. Uh, However, the families of vision conditions um, are more known, they're becoming more known, they're definitely more researched now.
0: Mm -hmm. So this has rendered you legally blind, and you've been, you've needed to overcome incredible obstacles in your life. What are some of those obstacles?
2: Well, the first obstacle was actually coming to terms with my disability. I've, I've mm-hmm. since birth had low vision and I've always had trouble seeing uh, in the dark, seeing color, um, detailed vision like faces and things on the street. I have very poor depth perception. So, you know, stairs and peripheral vision, things around me when I'm traveling. All of this stuff has always been a challenge. Um, and during those challenges as a, kid as a teenager I didn't necessarily want to accept that these were problems that I was having Uh, for a very long time I didn't travel using a white cane because that was too much of an identifier for people to know that I have uh, vision issues and yeah so that was the biggest barrier but obviously you know some of the examples that I pointed out are more practical uh, day-to-day experiences that I have
0: Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of stigma associated with this. You mentioned uh, not using the white cane or not wanting to use the white cane because it is a symbol that says, I have vision issues. Um, And that's hard for a lot of people. I know that in my clinical practice, I've heard that from patients as well, that once they start to lose their vision, they don't want to use that white stick. Yet it can be so helpful for people. But there's so much in the way of stigma as it relates to so many different health conditions, uh, not the least of which is um, inherited retinal disease or being legally blind. Um, There's another one that we had talked about prior, um, including openly discussing genetic disorders with your South Asian community. Tell me a little bit about that. Was that hard for you as well? Absolutely. So this, you know, internalized ableism that I felt for a very
2: long time and still feel tinges of in my current life, um, I think a lot of it stems from just culturally how disability is viewed, how people understand disability, and most of that is uh, filled. It's riddled with stigma. Uh, if you have a disability where I come from, which is Sri Lanka, um, back, if if I still lived there, uh, I think that my life would be very different. And it, it is for a lot of people. Obviously, now with the changing of technology and just more open discussions, as you said, we are becoming more aware. And it's more of a nuanced conversation. But before it was black or white, you know, you have a disability, you couldn't take part in society. Don't have a disability. Amazing, you can. So there's this gray area for people with disabilities, um, visible disabilities, where if you could pass as an able-bodied person, you're most likely going to take that route until you have the voice, the courage uh, to to start opening yourself up to the, the kinds of um, attitudes that people will have around your disability because, you know, you're you're showing resilience in that way, but for a very long time, myself, uh, at least, I did not want to let people know that I have a disability because I'm like, I already know how my community feels about this.
0: Very interesting. So would you say there are cultural sensitivities to genetic diseases? Yes, um, because
2: genetic diseases are what they are. Like sometimes when I have conversations with uh, somebody that I've met uh, who is Sri Lankan or South Asian, um, the the conversations often go oh yeah well I knew someone who dot 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 so I think that there is some awareness it's more about it being an elephant in the room than mm-hmm. just a an open discussion.
0: Hmm. Um. And you know you've had to overcome a fair bit, but you're you know quite an optimistic and amazing um, person. How has this affected you emotionally? Uh, throughout your life, given all of the, you know, the concerns about what people might think about you? Has there been an, an impact on your emotional or mental health? And and would that um, be common for other people with inherited retinal disease disorders as well? I definitely think so. Significant, um,
2: significant impact on your identity, on your emotional and mental well-being, and also it's a snowball effect, right? So you start this kind of tiptoeing, this internalized ableism when you're young, if, if your uh, condition starts to set in as a kid, and it just continues. You continue to reaffirm the stigmas, the ableism, the the kinds of attitudes that people show towards you. And then you have to go through the unlearning, the rewiring. And that part of it is very recent for me, honestly, like I'd say in the last 10 years or so. So as an adult is what I'm, uh, is when I've taken part in kind of making the big changes in my life and how I approach conversations around disability with my peers, with my communities. Um, But so many people can, Uh, can relate to this, I'm sure. Because when I talk to other people with disabilities who identify as being uh, brown or South Asian or Sri Lankan, we have a lot of this kind of thing in common. And sometimes it's as simple as, well, how do I talk to my parents about disability? And then other times it's as big as, well, how do I get on a stage and talk about my identity as a disabled person when I know that I'm struggling to come to terms with my identity?
0: Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you certainly have overcome a lot. Where can people get more information about inherited retinal disease, Ramya? Well, genetic testing is a huge thing that I um,
2: encourage people to look into, to get informed about and to get tested if you are curious, like at the least curious about what genes or mutations um, run in your family. And so if you go to Eyes on Genes, Dot ca that's where you can find the most information uh, you can also go to the fighting blindness canada website and you can just google fighting blindness canada to find out more but those two resources are very helpful for people uh, just to get
0: any kind of uh, any kind of information at all if this is where you're starting right now wonderful thank you so much for joining the program tonight we really appreciate you coming on and talking about this these conditions that uh you know, can cause great challenges and also stigmas, but also, um, you know, can show that people can live wonderful lives.
2: Thank you, Maureen. Thanks for catching up again.
0: On this day that many Canadians are celebrating, Canadian Thanksgiving. Have you heard of the term against medical advice? Discharge against medical advice or DAMA or sometimes just AMA in the emergency departments, depending where you're working, is defined as when a patient chooses to leave the hospital before the healthcare team recommends discharge from the hospitals. And this is very common in emergency departments, but it can certainly happen on wards as well. It's one of the most common problems in our current healthcare system. Choi et al. in a retrospective study matched cohort study of 656 patients found that the risk of readmission was 12 times more in patients who left against medical advice when compared to the non against medical advice group. They also found that the against medical advice group had an increased 12 month all cause mortality, 6.7% versus 2.4%. Bottom line, it's never a good thing to leave against medical advice. It also adds an economic burden. Recently, I had a family member who was in the hospital and I noticed they were not getting this person up post-operatively and they really should have. Remember, I am a registered nurse. And so I called about this and you know, why they weren't getting the patient up. And these days, many, um, hospitals, if they have physiotherapists on staff, it's the physiotherapist, not the nurses who get the patients up post op. And so the physiotherapist was not getting the pa- this relative of mine up to walk. And, um, they also weren't on 24 hours like nurses are. So it, they were only staffed until five o'clock. And so if it didn't happen, at f- by five, it wasn't going to happen. And when I inquired about it, I just said, you know, are, are you planning to get the patient up today? And the nurse said, the response was surprising to me, really surprising. She said, you can take them out against medical advice if you want. Now I wasn't being disrespectful. I think you've known me for a few years, and I'm what you see is what you get basically, and I, I literally was curious when they were planning on getting this particular person out of bed and up walking. And you know, that wasn't what I was saying at all, but I did feel that perhaps this was a burnout response from the nurse. And I understand nurses who are working at the bedside are burnt out these days, especially since post-pandemic, and they've probably gotten a lot of people who've been upset with them, and that's kind of an automatic response. Now, first and foremost, I do want to explain why it is important, because it seems counterintuitive perhaps for people who have never been hospitalized or have never had surgery, but why is it important that we get up and move after surgery? Well for one, body systems are slowed down tremendously post-op or after surgery and walking improves blood flow and speeds up the wound healing. And if you don't walk, you're at increased risk of constipation, which you already are post-op anyway, because all of the systems have shut down, but you're also more likely to get gas pain, weakness, and you are put at a higher risk for infections like pneumonia or also blood clots. And so it's extremely important that you get up and you start moving. Um, You may be put on blood thinners as well if you're Uh, Remaining in bed, uh, but it is so important to get up and to get moving. And so I just thought, wow, here it is asking a simple question and it's being tied to um, against medical advice, which I just found was I mean, I was really, really surprised at that. It just um, shocked me tremendously. Um, But, you know, this going against medical advice is interesting. And I actually remember a friend going into the emergency department and and feeling that they had broken something and had an x-ray and were waiting for hours and hours and hours and and they were waiting with somebody else as well who thought they had broken something. And the two of them were waiting for hours and then they they saw their x-rays come and up on the light and they decided that they were gonna take a look at their x-rays themselves and determine that there was no fracture there and they left against medical advice. In 2003, 2004, Close to 185,000 people left Canadian emergency rooms without treatment. And this number has been increasing annually, except for that slight dip that we saw in 2021. And that was because of the pandemic. In 2022, get this, over 14 million hospital visits were recorded with a staggering 965,000 patients leaving before receiving care. That's a five-fold increase since 2003. Doctors and nurses find these numbers concerning, but they often don't realize the extent of the patients leaving without care. Patients in, of course, less severe conditions can wait for hours, and that's becoming unbearable for some people. And, you know, there are consequences of missed emergency room visits because leaving may worsen the health condition that you presented with. And recent data reveals that one in 14 patients left without care in 2021 to 2022, and that can lead to tragic outcomes like death. People can die if they are not seen. And I always felt if you've turned up to the emergency department, it's important that you wait. And I know that the waits are getting so long, they're highly protracted in this current landscape of our healthcare system but it definitely can be worth it. Patients in less severe conditions, of course, are able to wait for hours. I know that is difficult, but it's important that you, if you turn up, that you stay and wait, but the influx of patients is not what the main issue is. And I was talking to a friend of mine recently, who's a discharge coordinator, and they were saying that it's so frustrating because they couldn't, discharge patients they had nowhere to send them to and even if they did they couldn't get anybody to move these patients out i wanted my family member to get discharged i felt they stayed at least an extra day um which is you know might not sound like a lot but when you have 30 patients staying an extra day that's 30 nights where somebody who actually needs the bed in the emergency room can actually take that bed so we have to look at that and multiply the factors out but the the influx of patients coming into the emergency department is not the main issues issue although a lot more people are coming in and we're getting a lot more people coming in after the pandemic as well but it is the lack of hospital beds and the overcrowded facilities that are causing the delays in our care oftentimes hospitals are operating at above full capacity so 115 percent. And that makes it essential that we have transfers to other departments. But oftentimes, patients have to stay in hallways in the beds. This ought to be a political concern in this country, given the significant health care budget here, how much we pay in taxes. And we actually need to speak up and learn about these issues so that we can request solutions from local representatives, political figures. And you know, this is an important area. And I often think it's a big issue because when politicians have no healthcare background, I have met with politicians in my career, and I mean, it's like you're it's falling on deaf ears. I met with a representative about urinary incontinence, a massive issue, number one reason for admission to long-term care facilities. I mean, it's just a nightmare. Educated this person through the whole thing, And after this presentation and explaining it, and this person shaking her head up and down, oh, yes, yes, this is unbelievable, at the very end of it said, oh, you know, too bad, my mother had it, and too bad there's nothing you can do about urinary incontinence. It's like, what? Are you kidding me? I mean, people think that. There are so many solutions for urinary incontinence. We'll cover that in another segment. Not the sexiest subject, but nonetheless. You know, I do want to also point out that most of the patients leaving the emergency departments... Uh, without getting care are low risk. But it is a marker of overcrowding and staffing problems. And in an ideal hospital, the percentage of such cases should be less than 1%. But some hospitals have reported rates as high as 40%. And so, you know, we've got to acknowledge these concerns about wait times. People need to start understanding the impact that it has, the implications on mortality and morbidity, um, readmission, it's a big economic concern as well. Not just for your health, which you know is your wealth. I was super excited when I saw this app. It's called Pedesting. And joining me on the line is the app's co-founder and also CEO of Podesting, because navigating downtown cores can be challenging, especially for people with mobility differences and mobility concerns. And that's people all across the lifespan. So helping people find a barrier-free path was the goal behind the new Calgary-based app? And joining me on the line to talk about this, as I said, is the app's co-founder and CEO of Pedesting, Nabil Ramji. Good evening, Nabil. How are you?
3: Good evening, William. I'm doing well. Thank you for having
0: me on your show today. Uh, well, uh, thank you so much for joining the program. I really appreciate it. So, so tell me, Nabil, what was the inspiration for you uh, to designing this app?
3: My inspiration for this episode is from my own lived experience of having a disability, but I'm primarily being a power wheelchair, and quite often I get very anxious when I go out because I don't like finding barriers in my and I can get really stressful at times, not knowing
0: what barriers might exist. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that get anxious before they go out, and uh, people who have ambulatory issues or people who are uh, with spinal cord injury and maybe require the use of a wheelchair. And so, going out, I imagine, in addition to all of the other things that, you know, may take up people's time, like bladder and bowel routines, for example, but going out can require a lot of pre planning as well. So, how does pedesting work exactly?
3: Uh, pedesting is a mobile app that, that maps out the space
0: completely.
3: So we work with the venue owners of business owners and get them built plan. We help identify things that like pick up and drop up areas with accessible entrances, whether the space has stairs or accessible awesome. I'm really providing a um,
0: mapping data using plan. That sounds amazing. So you, the app basically maps out the city and actually tells you like where ramps are, what's accessible, where you might have difficulty. It probably even tells what roads are closed.
3: Yes, exactly. Even though we call it temporary barriers, so whether sidewalk closes or temporary barriers like the elevators are down that day or the escalators are not working, so we're providing real-time information to you know, all pedestrians, whether a you know, mobile be dumped or not.
0: And so this is in Calgary now. Do you have plans to expand this across other major cities?
3: Yes, right now we have a few locations in Calgary, but we, we're very really
0: interested
3: in mapping. We call it a highly pedestrian the city road venue for any public places, whether that's office buildings or secondary institutions, uh, venues. or anywhere anywhere that people gather like to have fun or interact with other people.
0: It's just incredible and I I see so many other applications for this like city planners might actually gives them a bird's eye view of what's actually going on in their city and how accessible a city might be. And I would imagine it's a great foundation for improvement, for improvement of quality of life for many people who have mobility differences.
3: Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right, One of the great things about possessing it helps provide um, a good picture of what's there today and how to get around barriers. And over time, if, if more people use it, it helps provide more more data around where the problematic It might be. So, for example, if there's no code cuts, we can provide that information to the city, for example. Yeah,
0: it's just incredible. And I think it's not just people with mobility differences that would be using this app. I think it would be anybody who wants to navigate a city, tourists or, and and it might even have the potential, correct me if I'm wrong, to impact businesses. So if, you know, areas aren't accessible or roads are persistently closed, um, you know, that may impact traffic uh, along different businesses. I, this is an amazing tool that you've built, I think, that has so much more potential that, than may than maybe it was originally designed for. What do you think?
3: Yeah, yeah. you're yeah, absolutely right, whether you walk or, or
0: parents pushing
3: a uh, big child using a shoulder, seniors using a walker, or anybody who doesn't have a mobility time. We are, we are all pedestrians. You know, when you park your car and get out, you're a pedestrian. Or when you're taking public transit, to become a pedestrian. I forget all about yourself. So, you know, we are all possessing and that information can be very helpful uh, when you're trying to get somewhere that you've never been before or, or you know, or because of construction, like I said earlier, nice to know that type of information
0: ahead of time. It's just incredible because the app allows the users, and as you say, we're all pedestrians, we're all walking around, we're all trying to navigate the cities, but it allows us to plan our routes, identify barriers like stairs, find accessibility aids like ramps, whether there's a power door opener to a building, accessible washrooms, elevators, I would imagine also at sporting events, that kind of thing. What's the best seats people should be sitting in. Um, It just has so many applications. And as you said, it cuts out that anxiety uh, before you're going to go out. And, you know, it's so important that we remain socially connected and that people get out and get moving around their cities. And uh, it's just such an incredible Piece of technology that you have uh, developed, Nabil. I, thank you so much. And um, what are your plans uh, for the future of this app?
3: Well, no, thank you. You, know, uh, you, you highlight on the few that you know, because of the anxiety and the anxious, um, there's a lot of isolation that happens and um, talking to. People in the disabled community, for example, they don't feel comfortable leaving the house at all. So you know, in terms of our plans, we encourage you know, business owners, uh, asset owners, billing owners, or or any public gathering spaces that reach out to us, the interest in mapping the space, wanting to be welcoming for all pedestrians. You know, we we are very interested in expanding across Canada. So by all means, let's follow us. So for me and together, we can make Canada a more accessible country.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you so much. And I do want to mention that Pedesting is available for download on Google Play and the Apple Store. And I think you have potential to um, actually get into other countries as well. I'm sure many other countries need this, but good luck with your plans with Canada. And thank you, Nabil, so much for coming on the Sunday Night Health Show.
3: Well, thank you for having me. And, uh, and uh, it was a pleasure talking with you this evening. Thanks,
0: you.